Doing after Thanksgiving. Doing great. Good. Jesse's doing fantastic. Awesome. Go ahead and open to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 11 through the end of the chapter. A great passage of hope for us as we go into the Advent season. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised, by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building, excuse me, in him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. God's holy word. All right. Thanks, Janet. Hey, uh, before you get too comfortable, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take like two minutes, introduce yourself to somebody and tell them what is the most underrated food on the Thanksgiving table at your house. What's the most underrated? All right. So what's underrated? Everybody get up, tell somebody that you don't know your name and then have a, a quick fight about the most underrated food.
All right, all right, stop being friends. Make your way back. Is this on loud enough? Excellent. It's quiet up here. All right, stop being friends. Go sit down. That's enough. That's enough. Get some hot chocolate if you want. And we got the hot chocolate bar out. Listen, every week during Advent, something spectacular is going to be here. Besides just the people, which are already more than enough. But there's going to be some fun stuff that happens over Advent season. Next week, we're quite literally giving away some unexpected gifts. We had, as we were planning this, talking about unexpected gifts, we had a debate about is it GIF or JIF, which led us to say maybe we should tape small packets of JIF underneath everybody's seats. And, and that just goes to show you that not every idea is a good idea and not every conversation was worth having in the first place. But if you have some of those worthless conversations, you get some good ideas. And so next week, something that, uh, just an unexpected gift. Uh, the week after that, that's gonna be the 10th, right? The 10th, I'm not telling you much about the 10th, except to say that um, you're gonna wanna come back if you like coffee, because that's gonna be something that you'll definitely enjoy. The 17th is gonna be another thing. And then the 24th is Christmas Eve every year. And this year just so happens to fall on a Sunday. So we're gonna have a short Sunday morning service like 45 minutes with no childcare because we want our childcare workers to be able to enjoy Christmas Eve too. And then we're gonna have a candlelight service that evening where we sing and have like a little devotional. And obviously we will light some candles and do our best to not burn down our new facility, the box. Uh, most of which is not flammable. It's mostly just concrete, but still we're gonna do our best. And then we're gonna have like one, we're stretching Advent out into the final Sunday of the year. You won't wanna miss that either. It's gonna be awesome. I hope you'll come back each week. If you're in college, I hope that you will disappoint wherever you go to college so that you can come back here and be with us. Just bring your family with you. If you go to college and your family is here, then grab some of your friends and bring them back with you. It's gonna be an amazing, amazing time. It's gonna be fun. We're gonna have a lot of fun. Um, I know that you guys know this, but uh, Christmas is a lot more than just a baby in a manger. And... Um, it's more than a gift under a tree. And this series that we're in is gonna be about more than just the baby in the manger. Being a Christian isn't less than getting saved or it's not less than going through confirmation or being baptized or however you entered into faith in Jesus. It's not less than that, but it's definitely more than that. Um, Sarah and I had a wedding and the wedding is not all that there is to the marriage. The wedding is just the beginning of the marriage. And all the benefits of the marriage come from being inside of the marriage and staying in the marriage. And it doesn't mean that everything is always easy or that everything is always perfect or even that everything is always good. Sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes we fight. Sometimes we hurt each other, but we're protected by the bounds of this covenant that allows us to endure past those things and to keep reaping a benefit. So like as a wedding is, for those of you who have had logic and for those who haven't, as a wedding is to a marriage, so getting saved is to being a Christian. It's the beginning of something, not the full experience of something. And a lot of times we have, uh, as a church, not necessarily Red Hill, but the church, we have tried to point everyone only to the moment of salvation rather than to the ongoing experience of being a follower of Jesus. 
Whenever you become a Christian in the same way as whenever you get married, you enter into a covenant. You begin the covenant. And the longer that you stay in that covenant and the more faithfully that you administer that covenant and the better you are at keeping that covenant, the more you get to reap from it, the more blessings exist from being in it. And that's really what this series is gonna be about is besides just the baby in the manger, what are the blessings? Like what's the good stuff? What's the good part about being a Christian? What is there that is there for us that maybe we're accessing to some extent, but not really reaping the full benefit of, not really like getting all that we can get out of it? It's important for us to say at the outset of this, um, it's not unkind to say that some people are in the covenant and some people are not in the covenant. It is not unkind for me to say, I am married only to Sarah. And so there is a benefit, maybe we should use air quotes around it, for Sarah to being in a covenant marriage with me. And she and I get to derive the benefits of that in a way that the rest of you don't. It's our covenant. And it's not mean to say you're not in it. It's just true to say that you are not in it. And it's important for you to know that if you want to experience all of the good parts of a covenant, you have to be in it. You have to be a participant in it in order to get the best out of it. It's also worth noting though, that when people faithfully involve themselves and invest themselves and give themselves to the covenants that God has established, the world gets better. The whole world gets better. This is the coming of the kingdom of God. When we do the things that we said we were going to do, when we live the way that God commanded us to live, when we honor marriages, when we live faithfully as followers of Jesus, the world gets better. Jesus, in teaching about this in Matthew 13, he told them a parable and he said that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, like a farmer goes out, plows his field, plants a mustard seed, it grows up, the benefit of the mustard seed is apparently that's where mustard is made. I know a lot about herbology and biology and plantology. You can tell that's the primary benefit. But Jesus draws out this really interesting thing. He says that even the birds of the air get to nest there. That when, when we live the way that God has commanded us to live, then everything gets better. Even birds get a place to rest when we do what we are supposed to do. When God is speaking with Jonah about his concern for Nineveh, it's like this really weird throwaway sentence at the end of a really kind of strange book. But he says, there's like 140,000 people in Nineveh and many cows also. What a, what a weird it's just a weird thing for God to say, to finish out a book. And, and what's God saying? God's saying, I care about it all. I care about all of this. Like someday there's going to be new heavens and a new earth and we'll inhabit it. We'll rule and reign with Jesus. All of this will not be destroyed, but changed into what it's supposed to be. And the experience of life in Christ is supposed to have an impact on everything and everybody. And there's supposed to be tremendous benefits for us, his people. 
We're supposed to be able to grab a hold of those things and experience them and enjoy them. And that's really what this is all about. We're gonna get to explore some of the covenant blessings. When you think about covenant, I want you to think about a marriage, which is supposed to be exclusive, bound for life, and for people to enjoy. That's not always what it looks like, but it's one of the easiest ways for us to understand what a covenant is. It's a commitment that you make to God. He protects, he preserves. And when you enter into relationship with God, you are enjoying the covenant that Jesus established. At the end of this sermon, we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Jesus sat down with his disciples. This isn't the response moment. Some of you guys are like, this is the shortest sermon Raiden has ever preached. You can come up and take it if you want to. I don't care. I'm unbothered by movement and noise and children and, and adults and pretty much everything. I'm just unbothered, generally speaking. But Jesus, when he sat down with his disciples, he said, I'm creating a new covenant in my blood. I, I'm dying on the cross. I'm gonna resurrect from death. And by shedding my blood, I'm starting something new. It's not, you don't get to God in the old way anymore. He's saying there's a new way to enter into relationship with God. And to enter into relationship with God means to enter into his covenant, to be loved by him, preserved by him, protected by him, forgiven by him, renewed by him, saved by him, and then someday taken to heaven by him. That's what it is to be inside of a covenant. So the, the first unexpected gift that we're gonna open this morning is just a spiritual family, just having a spiritual family. And I, I wanna look and work through, again, the text, and we'll kind of work through it in pieces. So uh, Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says, so then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. And at that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise and without hope and without God in the world. So he says, remember... You were, you were. He's talking to people now who are part of the church, who are Christians. That's who he's talking to. And he's saying, don't forget that you used to not be that. Sometimes the language of the New Testament, even the New Testament, sometimes it's difficult to understand because we don't talk in terms of Jew and Gentile very often in our normal everyday language. And hopefully, we definitely don't talk, hopefully, about circumcised and uncircumcised in our everyday language. But Paul is trying to emphasize something important. He says, remember, you were Gentiles, you were the uncircumcised, you were without Christ, you were excluded from Israeli citizenship, you were foreigners of the covenants of promise, you were foreigners, you were outsiders, you were excluded, you were without Christ, you weren't part of this family. What he's saying is you had nothing to do with God and God's people, and you had no access to get into it. You were quite literally an outsider, you weren't part of it. You were standing at the windows of the toy store looking at toys that you will never be able to afford and you will never get to enjoy. That he's trying to describe that the, the, the truth that at one time, all of us who were in Christ, at one time, we were completely cut off. We had no access to it. We had no enjoyment of it. We had no route to get it. We were not part of it. 
It was something altogether that had nothing to do with us. Don't forget, he says, you are without hope. Without hope is a terrible way to try to live life. It's a terrible way to try to live life. And honestly, I think without hope is probably the leading cause of suicide in the world. Because to be without hope means you have no reason to believe that anything will ever get better. That's what it means to be without hope. And those who, are a part, who have no part with God, those who are outside of his covenant, those who are not part of his family, those who are not his people, those who have not been saved, the Bible describes them as without hope. There's no reason to believe that it will get better. It's why one of our values is choose to hope because as long as you're still breathing, there's still hope. There's still good reason to believe it will get better. It will improve. Without hope, there's no reason to believe it's gonna get better. And without God, there's no access. You're completely cut off. You have no route to get it, no opportunity to get it, no means to get it, no way to get it. You are desperate, confused, defeated, and alone. That's who you were. And Paul's trying to draw out and really clarify something that is exceedingly important. That's who you were. You're not supposed to live like that anymore. That's not who you are supposed to be anymore. You don't have to experience life like that anymore. That's not your lot. That's not your story. And he says in verse 13, but now, which is always good when you read like something terrible in the Bible, when you're experiencing something terrible and somebody goes, but now, and you're like, okay, it's gonna get better. And sometimes it gets worse. You know, like, but now it's even worse. My dad jokes, he says, um, everybody is familiar with uh, Murphy's Law, which says that if anything can get worse, it will get worse. It, but my dad says, nobody knows O'Malley's Law, which says that Murphy was an optimist. This is like doubling down or something on how bad things can possibly get. But that's not the story here. It says, but now, but now. In verse uh, 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he's our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Some of you guys fell asleep in that little section, but I hope that you don't miss this. Everything changes when you're in Christ. Everything is different when you're in Christ. We did a whole series on this some of which might be in our podcast. We're still, we're trying to figure out how to podcast. We're not very good at it yet. Getting a little bit better. If you're good at podcasting, come see me and you can take over our podcast. It'd be great. I'd love it. The key is being in Christ. That's the key. At one time, I was not married to Sarah. But now I am married to Sarah. At one time, we did not have children. But now we do have children. At one time, God is saying to you this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, at one time, you had no access, you had no reason to have hope, you were completely cut off, and all of the good things that are supposed to be yours because of the death of Jesus, you couldn't have them. You couldn't get them, you couldn't buy them, 
You couldn't experience them. All you could do is look through the window and watch other people and wonder why it wasn't like that for you. There's so much more than heaven someday. You know why I think people um, deconstruct their faith and why I think people don't go to church and why I think people generally are not really all that invested in following Jesus is because we're looking for something spectacular. We're looking for something wonderful. We're looking for something that inspires some awe. There's like a longing inside of me that, that, that the everyday experience of being a human being would be in some way like almost magical, like that there's supposed to be something more than just a regular Tuesday. And when we go to church and we meet other Christians and we go through the rhythms of everyday life and, and we meet people who claim the name of Jesus but lead sort of bland, blasé, normal lives, and we see the only distinction between us and them is that they give up a little bit of their money and a lot of their time, and that they experience more feelings of guilt and shame than other people do. We go, well, I don't know if I need more of that in my own life. We want our life to be imbued with something like beautiful, something special, something that's extraordinary. And when you look at this text and what it actually says about what it's like to be in Christ, he says that those who are far away are brought near. The common thought about getting close to God is that he's going to hurt me if I get close to him. He's gonna be mad at me and he's gonna punish me if I get close to him. And so I wanna stay far away. And if I've lived a lot of uh, sin during the week, I can't go into a church building because the walls will fall in and the roof will cave in. But verse 14 says that Jesus is our peace. Like that bubbling anxiety that we have that, that says I have to start, stay far away from people. Like I can't let anybody in close. I certainly can't let God in close. When we're in Christ, what we discover is that we have peace, that we get to walk into the presence of an almighty God with peace inside of us, not with fear inside of us. And then this, these verses, really the thing I think they're trying to emphasize the most, that Paul's trying to emphasize the most is that there was a time when the law, like adherence to the law was how you got into the covenant, how you became a part of the family of God. It was the barrier and the boundary wall. And in the temple, it was quite literally a wall. There was the court of the Gentiles. Anybody who was not Jewish by birth could only come so far into the building. Imagine if it, oof, I don't know what happened right there. I almost died. Imagine if you walked into our building today and we were like, if you're not from, like if you weren't born in Glen Carbon or Edwardsville, then you could only come into this section over here. I mean, I'd be preaching from over there, but this is essentially what it was like. The experience of those seeking God had to adhere to the law in order to gain access to him. And if you weren't born into it, you couldn't be a part of it. You were cut off. That's the point. 
But in Christ, you've been brought near. The law is no longer the barrier and the boundary wall. And in verse 15, it says that Jesus made it of no effect. In other words, Jesus said, the law still exists, but it really doesn't have any kind of bearing on us. This, by the way, is why the Pharisees and Jesus had so many problems. Like, if you know anything about the New Testament, you know that Jesus and the Pharisees, it's like the jets and the sharks, man. It is, it's on. We just, we don't like each other and we're going toe to toe over and over and over again. It's because there's the Torah, which is the Old Testament law. And then there's what's called the Mishnah. So the Torah was like the boundary wall. And, and the Pharisees, they said this, they said, it's not enough to know where the boundary is. We don't want to get close to the boundary. We're afraid of breaking the law. So we're going to operate out of fear as we think about God. We're going to operate out of fear and we're going to create the Mishnah. So they created, the, God said, here's the boundary wall. And the Pharisees were like, let's put a hedge of protection around the boundary wall. And that's the Mishnah. So if the Torah was set, the Torah said, don't work on the Sabbath. The Mishnah said, you can only take so many steps on the Sabbath. You can only carry so many pounds on the Sabbath, which is why when Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field and his disciples are like, we're hungry, let's have some natural popcorn, and they start plucking the heads of grain off of the, off of the flowers or weeds or whatever's growing. Again, I know a lot about plants and plant life. The Pharisees are asking, why are your disciples breaking the law? They weren't talking about the Torah, which God made. They were talking about the Mishnah, which man made. In the world that we live in today, we still experience this. When people will try to thrust upon you the expectations of holiness that exist inside of their own head and heart. They try to say, this is what it looks like to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian. You have to do these things and you can't do those things. And if you do these things, you're a bad person. And if you don't do these things, you're a bad person. And so the experience of following Jesus simply becomes a checklist. If you're like me, you grew up in a church where you quite literally had a checklist on an envelope, which you were expected to put money in and put into an offering plate every single Sunday. And the checklist had things like, how many times did you read your Bible this week? And let me tell you something, nobody has ever lied more than when they were checking the boxes on those envelopes. Because you're like, you're like, oh man, I gotta do this. Like one verse, close Bible, one verse, close Bible, one verse, close Bible, one verse, close Bible, seven times. I read my Bible seven times this week. Did you invite anyone to church? Y'all want to come to church? We're already at church. Yes, I invited some people to church. Like you had a checklist of things that you were supposed to do. And if you do those things, you're a good person. We still use the metrics today. You look at me and you go, well, you preach on a stage, so you're a good person. Nope, I'm a person. You're a passionate communicator and you can take the Bible and make it more understandable. So you're a good Christian. Now, there's not a varsity and a junior varsity to this thing. This is what Jesus is saying. Adherence to those rules is not what brings you into favor with God. It's not what brings you into the covenant. It's not what makes you part of it. That's not how you're brought in. The law is no longer the barrier, meaning Keep it or don't keep it, but if you keep it, you get in. You don't keep it, you're kicked out. It's also no longer the boundary, the thing that preserves and protects God's people and differentiates them from the rest of the world. 
That's not what it is anymore. These verses are also trying to tell us something important about what Jesus did for us. He took the shame and the sin and the guilt and the punishment. He took God's anger about it. All my sin, all my shame, all my guilt, all of God's anger about all of those things, all the punishment that I deserved, it was put on Jesus when he went to the cross. And when Jesus died, he put to death all of those things. Those things in the eyes of God are dead for me. They don't live anymore. All of it was poured out on him. And when Jesus came up out of the grave, the only thing he took with him was me. All of that is left behind. It has no sway and no power over me any longer. Verse 16 sums it up really well when it says, he put hostility to death. Have you ever been around a hostile person? I have this running joke that I like to tell. I have some friends who are charismatic and they speak in tongues. If you speak in tongues, that's fine. I don't care. It doesn't bother me. Uh, if you do it here, you have to do it in an orderly way. And I'd love for you to talk to me about that. If you blurt something out in tongues, I'm probably going to say something awkward and get a laugh. And I don't mean it critically. It's just when I get nervous, I start telling jokes. But my friends who speak in tongues are like, you should speak in tongues. And I'm like, I don't like what I say in English. So I've been praying that God would allow me to have, instead of the gift of tongues, the gift of drums, where I could just sit down and be able to play the drums. I think he could do that if he wanted to, and I'm far more comfortable and excited about that prospect than speaking a language. I don't know what I'm saying. And so I tell this, it's, it's just a joke. It's just a funny thing to say. But I was, I was with someone, uh, I, was, I was gonna preach at a church. I was talking to the worship team beforehand, and, I, and I'm running this little joke, you know, like I want the gift of drums. And this young lady who's leading worship and uh, clearly uh, like gonna be a good friend of mine. She's like, haven't you ever heard of practicing? That's what you call hostility. <laughs> right? Some of you are like, listen, I just got back from Thanksgiving. I was with extended family and I'm very familiar with hostility. Okay. <laughs> Like, I can, I can clearly remember hostility, the experience of hostility. This, haven't you ever heard of practicing? I was like, oh, you're on team try hard. I'm on team miracle. You're looking for what you can do. I'm looking for what God can do. You want to do this? I can do this all day. I preach for a living, girl. And I'd love to say I didn't really say that, but I really did say that. I was like, you know, I was like I'm going to take this joke all the way to the limits of being a joke. It's just a joke. But we know what hostility feels like. Why is it that we think that's how God feels about us? That he feels this resentful anger that we are not yet what we are supposed to be. It's because we think it's about our adherence to the law, whatever the law looks like in your world. It's about our ability to execute the covenant. It's about our ability to be good. It's about our ability to be faithful. It's about our ability to do the right thing all the time. And we beat ourselves up when we don't. And we should feel convicted and we should repent when we sin. But we should also know that God's disposition towards us is peace, not hostility. His perspective about me is, I want you as close to me as possible, no matter what you've done. I want you brought near. 
I'm not angry at you. I want you brought close. That's really good news. He put hostility to death. And Jesus preaches to them, and Jesus preaches to us. Just one consistent message. I don't care if you're far away. I don't care if you feel like you're really close. There's peace for you in the presence of God. I'm your peace. When you're in Christ, you're okay in the presence of God. And in verse 18 through 22, some of you guys are like, are we ever going to get to spiritual family? Like, we haven't really gotten there yet. I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. He says in verse 18, for through him, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. In other words, Jesus is now the barrier and the boundary wall for God's people. It's no longer about, am I good enough? It's about, am I in Christ? Because if I'm with Jesus, then I'm good to go. I've been made right, not by my ability to do right. I've been made right by what Jesus did for me. I stay right with God, not because I am good, but because I am in Christ, which means over and over and over and over and over again, I get to come back to him and freely and fully repent of sin and experience forgiveness. And when I come to him, he is faithful and just to forgive me every single time. In fact, he wants me back there. Hi, Phoebe. That's just a drive-by. I thought that, thought that was going to be a, a little touch, but it was just a drive-by. Okay. It's not a new thing for me to read signals wrong, particularly with the female gender. It's very comfortable. I'm very comfortable with that. Jesus is what brings us in. Jesus is what keeps us in. Jesus is also, by the way, what keeps people out. You can be as good as you want to be. You can come to church as many times as you want to come to church. You can put as much money in the plate or the box as you want to. I mean, that literally, you put as much in there as you want to. We won't stop you. It's a joke. But truth, still true. But that's not how you get in. That's not the way, the truth, and the life. That's not the access point into favor with God. The way that you come into relationship with God is only in Christ. It's about what he did. He's the one who will either be the reason that people are discluded or be the reason that people are included. And by the way, Jesus said when he was praying, he was like, Father, you put them in my hand and I'm not letting any one of them go. In other words, he's the one who will keep us. We don't keep him. He keeps us. It's really, it's funny because it's really like a better explanation would not be that I invited Jesus into my heart, but that Jesus invited me into his. It's, it's not that I let him come into me. I mean, I did, I'm filled with his spirit. But the real issue is that I'm brought into him and I'm preserved and protected in him. We get to be fellow citizens with the saints. You could talk a lot about that, particularly in a politically charged world that we live in today. In a democracy, my vote counts the same as your vote, just one vote. We have equal rights 
responsibilities and privileges, you are on equal footing with the guys who wrote the Bible. They don't have a secret pathway to God. They didn't have a secret pathway to God that doesn't exist for you. They didn't have a bat phone that would give them greater access than God has given to you. You, You're on equal footing with them, which is pretty cool. But also, you're made members of God's household. You, if you are in Christ, you've been brought into a family. I, uh, I have a few cross-references just so you can see that this is something that's consistently taught in Scripture. And I put them all in the message translation. Uh, uh, once again, there are different translations of the Bible. The Greek's written primarily in, uh, excuse me, the New Testament's written primarily in Greek. And, and some translations try to go word for word. Some of them will go phrase for phrase, some sentence for sentence, and some thought for thought. And, and the message is a thought for thought, very modernized Uh, translation of the Bible. So it's great for devotion, not great for like deep study, but I want to share these with you. Ephesians uh, chapter one, verses five and six. Um, Is it on the screen? You can throw it on the screen. It says, long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift-giving by the hand of his beloved son. Long, long ago, God, he he devised this great and wonderful plan that he was gonna make you part of his family. He's gonna bring you in and make you part of his family. Look at Romans chapter eight, verses 15 and 16. It says, this resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. We can just pause for a second right there and say the experience of following Jesus is not supposed to just be about death, about being timid, about making sure that you don't make any mistakes. Like the goal of following Jesus is not just make sure you don't ever sin ever, play defense all the time. It is, it's supposed to be adventurously expectant, greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Papa? Yeah, God's spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who he is and we know who we are, father and children. And we know we are going to get what's coming to us, an unbelievable inheritance. That's the crazy part is we go, you're gonna get what's coming to you. And we think there is a fist at the end of that. And God says, there's a gift at the end of that. It's a little uncomfortable for us to be like, you know, Like one of the more uncomfortable experiences is if you're in a group and somebody starts praying to God and they say, daddy, no, daddy God makes makes me a little bit uncomfortable. But then when we look at, um, let's look at Matthew 6, 9, Evan, can we switch or jump ahead just a little bit to Matthew 6, 9? Because Jesus gives us some instructions about how we're supposed to pray. Can you jump to that one? Maybe, do we have, we don't have that one? Okay, there it is. Matthew six, it's a a little, uh, Matthew six, I think it's seven through nine is actually what we have. He says, uh, this is Jesus talking. He says, "Uh, don't fall for that nonsense. Uh, No, go back one, go back one, sorry. Uh, The world is full of so-called prayer warriors who are prayer ignorant. They're full of formulas and programs and advice, peddling techniques for getting uh, what you want from God. 
And Jesus, paraphrased, says, don't fall for that nonsense. This is your father you're dealing with, and he knows better than you what you need. With a God like this loving you, you can pray very simply like this. Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Do what's best as above, so below. What's best as above, so below. As it is in heaven, let it be here on earth. This is revolutionary language. The Hebrew text, the Hebrew language has no vowels. When you write Hebrew, there are not letters for vowels. You see points and dashes up above and below the letters. It's called vowel pointing. And it's teaching, it was done by the Masoretic scribes hundreds of years before Jesus would come on the scene. And it was done to help people who didn't know Hebrew be able to read Hebrew so that they could read exactly what's there. Because if you saw a paragraph and there were no vowels, you're gonna probably get most of it right, but you might get some of it very, very wrong. And when you're talking about the Bible, you don't really wanna get it wrong. But all of that came from a fear of misusing God's name. The name Yahweh. The Jews were so afraid of misusing, of taking his name in vain, of violating that covenant, that when they began writing the language, because originally it was just a verbal language, when they began writing it, they said, let's take out the vowels. They wouldn't even say God's name. They wouldn't say it. Jesus said, when you pray, not only can you say God, not only can you say Lord, which is a title. It'd be like if my children called me pastor, I don't, I don't really want to be called pastor by anyone. I just want to be Raiden. I want to be known. I want you to know what my name is. And what, what Jesus is saying is that when you pray, you don't have to use remote and distant language that's based on titles and distance. You don't have to use formalities because you're his. He's your father, He's been, you've been brought into a relationship with him. I don't want my children calling me Mr. Hollis. I don't want them calling me pastor. We have familial language because we have familial intimacy and they get to call me dad. If they want to win their mom's heart, they call her mama. If you were to call me dad and you weren't Caleb, Nathan, or Aubrey, it would be weird, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be weird because I am not your dad. You have not been adopted into my family, but we have been adopted into God's family. He's not an angry father. He's not a distant father. He's not an abusive father. He's not an alcoholic father. He's not a father who will betray you leave you or abandon you. He is quite literally your Abba that your spirit cries out. In 1 John chapter three, it says, look at how greatly God's loved us, how lavishly he's poured out his love on us that we would be called his children. That's what we are, which means of course that we've been brought into a family, which means of course that in a spiritual sense, we're brothers and sisters. This is a gift that God has given to us, a family. If that's a gift that God has given to us, then let me tell you something. That Grinch that is the devil definitely wants to take it away. And his primary strategy 
to target you is isolation. That's the problem. Isolation is one of the premier, one of the preeminent, one of the most potent problems that exists in the world ever. His strategy is to separate us, to divide us, and then to devour us. How does he do it? I'm just gonna give you a few of the ways that I think that we isolate. A few of the lies that we fall for, a few of the tricks that we fall for, a few of the things that we do that isolate us. Number one, we've traded away real connection for virtual convenience. Whenever I was growing up, the joke was, most people now are more busy watching friends than they are out there making friends. But friends is gone now. Now we have friends online. I have over a thousand Facebook friends. The vast majority of them, I don't know who they are. Why are they your friend? It feels rude to kick them off my page. They came for the show, I guess. I don't know. I feel, I mean, whatever. I'm not sure. But we spend most of our time in a world of virtual convenience rather than the real world of friendship building and relationship building. We traded away the experience of love for the dopamine, uh, dopamine hit of getting likes and comments. Can you count on one hand, or do you need more than one hand to say, these are the people walking through life with me who deeply love me? Do you have people in your life that you're like, <laughs> it's kind of morbid, but for me, one of the, one of the, the metrics for me is, do I know who's gonna carry my casket? Because the people that carry me to my final resting place, they're the same people that have been carrying me through this non-resting place. They're the people that are really with you. The, the virtual world has made us all tourists in the lives of others instead of friends who walk side by side with them through it. Tourists like the sights and the sounds and the smells and the tastes, but they don't get the actual experience. That's what love does. We also live in a hyper-sexualized world where the most important thing about you is sexual autonomy. The power to determine your biological sex, the freedom to experience as many sexual partners as possible, and the right to follow sexual attraction wherever it leads. The end result of that most oftentimes is depression and loneliness and anxiety. Following our heart has never taken us to a place that we wanted to be. The one thing that I have proven to myself over and over and over again is I don't know how to make me happy. And the more that I try to give myself the things that I want, the more I experience discouragement, depression, anxiety, insecurity. In this kind of a culture, nobody is safe because everybody is either a conquest or a threat. And if everybody is a conquest or a threat, then nobody is brought into the circle of family. Not only that, but we're nomads now. Like gone are the days for the most part where generations of people live in the same place you know, like my grandparents and my great-grandparents and my great-great-grandparents and my aunts and uncles and my cousins, and we all live in the same community and we all experience life together, which gives us these really deep roots 
into our own identity and these really deep roots into family and into culture and like gives us this really strong sense of identity and worth and we're deeply connected. We're nomads now, like we just, we just move around and everybody moves around all the time. The expectation is that about every three years, the whole church will pretty much turn over because the whole community will pretty much turn over because everybody's gonna change jobs and careers and spouses and geographies and try different things. And I'm not opposed to those things, but I also understand those things do have an effect on us. I grew up at one time, the home that I was born in, across the street was my aunt and uncle and a few houses down was my grand and peepaw. And, and that does something to you, creates a stability inside of you. Gone are the days of Mayberry when you could sit on your porch and see everybody that you went to high school with, junior high with, elementary school with. Gone are the days when you go to the store and everybody there knows who you are, knows what you were like. Many of them changed your diapers. You can't get away with anything because everybody knows you and they know your parents and they love you enough to rat you out. Those days are gone. And that's not all bad, but a result of that is anonymity and isolation. And not only that, but we experience broken homes, which is the experience of most people today. The majority of all marriages, Christian, non-Christian, the majority of all marriages in the United States end in divorce. And what happens when that foundation is lost is oftentimes people are set adrift. They get confused about who they are. They get confused about who God is. They can feel misplaced shame, like somehow it's their fault that their family didn't make it. And not only that, but many of us grew up in really unhealthy church cultures where the church wasn't a family that loved each other. It was a corporation that was bent on world domination and just amassing more and more and more and more. And the whole philosophy of it was you exist only to get other people to come here and be part of this, which means, of course, you are only a means to an end rather than the actual goal of why it came together in the first place. The church, I will say, is the one organization that's supposed to exist for those who do not yet participate in it. But the existence of that is not so that we can put more people in a room on Sunday, but so that we can bring more people into the love of a family. If you haven't talked to Matt Pace before, you should talk to him and ask him, what happened when you came to Red Hill and what made you stay at Red Hill? And I gotta tell you, I'm part of the story and I'm super glad I did what I did because that dude loves this church and he loves everyone who walks in this church and he wants to bring you into his family and make you part of it. And if you get to know him, you're gonna get to know he's not perfect. He's, he's got stuff he's working out and dealing with, but he does it in a way that a healthy family does it, where it's like, yeah, we're gonna fight about stuff. We're gonna hurt each other. We're gonna offend each other. Then we're gonna hug each other and we're gonna keep moving forward together. Getting a family when you need a family is one of the most wonderful and terrifying experiences that a person can possibly go through. And, and I want you to know, if you feel that way about entering into a church family or entering into God's love and becoming part of his family, I wanna say to you, it's okay to be afraid. It's okay to be afraid if you've been smacked around by the world, smacked around by the church, smacked around by life, 
It's okay for you to be afraid. It's okay for you to be hesitant. It's okay for you to be anxious and nervous. It's okay for you to think there's no possible way that that is real. That's, it's okay for you to think and believe all of those things. And our job as a church family is to just keep proving that it's true. To refuse to give up and to keep proving that it's true. And here's how we keep proving that it's true. By being a family. Which means we're going to hurt each other and we're going to offend each other and we're going to disappoint each other and we keep moving forward together. And by saying you're much more In fact, you're not at all a sexual conquest or a sexual threat. You're a brother and a sister. By saying, it's going to take a whole village to raise all the idiots. And guess what? We were at one time being raised by the idiots, which means we are now all just bumbling around, doing our best and trying to figure it out. It means taking corporate responsibility for each other and with each other. And it means, uh, Josh and Stephen particularly, that an organizing principle, like an operating principle for us has to be, does this help us become a closer family? Does this help us be more of a family? Uh, One of my favorite things that's happened recently is Trisha taking over, making disciples of our kids and, and helping lead out in that because she had a burden from God to do something. So for a long time, we had nothing for kids that, that finished kindergarten. Like once you graduate kindergarten, you just have to be able to understand Greek and Hebrew. Sorry, you're in here. That's just how it goes now. Just deal with it, grow, grow into it. But I, I, I love that because we don't say, well, a church has to have the following things or it isn't a church. A church has to have two people and the Holy Spirit. That's what it has to have. Past that, it will grow and develop and change as God leads because it's a body and we're part of a household. We're part of a family. Being a family, a real, healthy, spiritual family might be the single most significant and powerful gift that we can give each other and that we can give to our community because most people don't have any concept as to what that looks like. They've never gotten to experience it. So five steps to opening this gift. Here we go. We're into the practical part. We're almost at the end. So five steps to opening this gift of a spiritual family. Ready for the first one? boy. whoever said that. Thank you, Jesse. Uh, join the church you attend. Join it. Some of you are like, well, I'm in college. You're here nine months. You're there three months. We get you. That's just how it works. Yeah. Join the church. Join the church that you attend. If this isn't the church you attend, you attend another church, join it. If you don't want to join that church, find a church that you want to be a part of and get into it. Plug into it. And when I say join it, I don't mean put your name on a roster somewhere. I mean participate. Be a part of it. I don't need an arm that hangs off my body and can do nothing. That's not an addition. If I had a third arm and it did nothing, there would be no point in having the third arm. If I had a third arm and it did something, I'm, I'm picking up a sport. I don't know what it's gonna be yet, but I'm playing something and I'm gonna be crazy. It's gonna be insane. Like a triple crossover in basketball because I've got three arms, you know? I can do all kinds of stuff if I have another arm. As people join Red Hill, Red Hill changes. It's a family. When your family adopts someone, your family changes. 
It changes. It's supposed to change. The rhythms change. The capacities change. The potential changes. So join the church that you attend. Second thing is this. Find friends in a gospel community. Some of you are like, this is really pretty basic stuff. Yeah, that's how it works, guys. That's how life is transformed in all ways by simple things that you do with consistency. That's how life changes. That's how the world changes. Find friends in a gospel community. You know why? Because life's gonna happen. Something's gonna happen. And when something happens, you're gonna go talk to your friends about it. And the people that are your friends are then gonna set the course of the next leg of your life's journey because they're gonna advise you. They're gonna counsel you as to how to deal. Find some friends in a gospel community. Number three, build margin into your life. You're not busy, you're limited. You're not busy, you're limited. And every one of us is limited and we all do what we want to do. Your schedule fills up with the things that you want to do. Margin will not magically appear for you ever. If you're waiting for the day when it gets easier, it's the day that you die. Other than that, there will always be a distraction. There will always be something else that you can do. Build margin into your life. The fourth thing is make space at your table. Because somebody in this room does not know what it's like to have a dad. Somebody doesn't know what it's like to have a mom. Somebody doesn't know what it's like to have a kid. Somebody doesn't know what it's like to have a brother or to have a sister. And the one thing that should be true of your family is that if someone is added to your family, there's room for them. There's room for them. Make space at your table. And then the fifth thing is this. Generously and lavishly love the person that's in front of you. Evan, can you throw the fifth thing up? Generously and lavishly love the person in front of you. If you wait for the ideal situations to love people, if you wait for the perfect church to love people, you are never going to love anybody. And guess what? One of the great joys of life is loving others. Like just knocking their socks off. It's so much fun. Like some, some of you are great gift givers. My daughter Aubrey is an incredible gift. If you are her friend and you invite her to your birthday party, like you're just gonna get like the most thoughtful gift. And what's so great is to see how much fun it is for her to plan it, to think about it. That's what it's supposed to be like for you on the regular. If you want your life to have some fun in it, to have some joy in it, to have some meaning in it, to have some purpose in it, wake up tomorrow morning and say, I'm going to intentionally love all the people that God puts in front of me today. I'm gonna find a way to love them. And guess what? Here's like, this is my personality. I'm little, for those of you who didn't know, not like little as in part of Gary and Stacy's physical family, spiritual family, yes. I'm a small human being. With that, every small human being is born with a Lay's potato chip on their shoulder and the endless need to prove that they are not in fact little. Like just, just to, I just enjoy a good scrap every now and then is what I'm saying. And sometimes 
one of the best ways to really, really get people's goat is to love them when they're trying to hate you. Woo! There's not a whole lot better for me than if you're like, I'm just gonna ruin your life by hating you. I'm like, oh, baby, it's on. Because I'm on team miracle over here. And I'm gonna drive you nuts by loving you endlessly. Like, generously, lavishly love the person that's in front of you. The more that we do that, the more that we become a family. It's important to know what the devil wants for you is isolation. What God has given to you is a family. But like any family, if you want to enjoy it, you have to work. You have to go through some uncomfortable spots. You have to go through some hard spots and you have to have a lot of grace, a lot of grace. Well, how in the world are we supposed to ever do that for anyone else? Well, let me say again, God made you part of his family, not the you that your mom says that you are, not the you that your mom thinks that you are, the actual you, the real person. God made you part of his family and God keeps you in his family. And that's where you find all of the ability, the power, the energizing force to say, I'm gonna love the person that's in front of me. I'm gonna forgive the person that's in front of me and I'm gonna keep forgiving the person that's in front of me. And when you don't forgive and when you stop loving, we have to understand we're the problem. When that's the story, we're the problem. God gave us an incredible gift, my deepest hope for Red Hill, my deepest hope is that it would remain and, and, and even, even grow in this, that it would remain a place that's filled with people that I just love being with, that let me be me and help me become what God is making me. That's what it is to be part of a family. Let's pray together. I, I, before we pray, I do wanna, I wanna invite you to bow your head and close your eyes briefly. And I wanna invite you to become a part of the family. And I, and I want you to know that the way that you become part of the family, it says in the book of Romans that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we'll be saved. Really what that means is, is that if we put our hope in Jesus, if we say Jesus is the one, like, like I don't mean verbally say it, but like in our hearts, if we say Jesus is the one who makes me right with God, like he's the only one who can bring me into that family, all my faith is in him, that's how you get in. He's like the doorway that you go through, faith in him. And everyone who's here can enter into that family this morning. I'm gonna be available for a little bit over here on the side with the tables to talk to. If you wanna come into that family, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to pray with you. Some of you who are here this morning have experienced deep family trauma. Some of you even just this week experienced deep family trauma. And if you wanna pray about it or talk about it, I'll be available for you both after the service and just in perpetuity as your pastor. And some of you may have something else that God stirred up inside of you that you just want to talk about or pray about. I'll be available for you and would love to meet with you, would love to talk to you. Josh, Stephen will be playing, but he'll be available after the service. We're your pastors. We want to walk through it with you. We want to love you through it and we want to love you in it. And we want to say that um, we understand built into us is an ideal of what family's supposed to be. And we want to, as a church, keep striving towards that ideal. And I'm not so 
foolish or blind as to think that some of you haven't experienced hurt at this church. And if you tell me about it, I wanna do what I can to repent, to ask for forgiveness and try to make that right too. In other words, you don't have to be afraid because you're part of a family. And those of you who aren't yet part, you're invited in. We'd love to have you. Let me pray for us. And then when you're ready, you can come to the Lord's table. Take the bread, dip it in the juice. Those of you who are followers of Jesus are invited to do that. God, thanks for giving us Jesus. Thanks for bringing us close. Thanks for taking away all the hostility, making it have no effect, that there's no hostility towards us when we put our faith in Jesus, when we keep walking forward towards you. We don't have to be afraid. What a gift. Help us to enjoy it and help us as a church, help us to become a real family. Pray it in Jesus' name, amen. When you're ready, you can come to the table.